0: Good morning everyone, I have a Bible reading from Leviticus 24. The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to bring you clear oil or pressed oils for the light so that the lamps may be kept to burning continually. Outside the curtain that shields the ark of the covenant law in the tent of meeting. Aaron is to tend the lamps before the Lord from evening till morning, continually. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. The lamps on the pure gold lamp stand before the Lord, must be tended continually. Take the finest flour, and bake 12 loaves of bread, using two tenths of an ephah for each loaf. Arrange them in two stacks, six in each stack, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. By each stack, put some pure incense is it? as a memorial portion to represent the bread and to be a food offering presented to the Lord this is this bread is to be set out before the Lord regularly sabbath after sabbath on behalf of the Israelites as a lasting covenant it belongs to Aaron and his sons, who are to eat in the sanctuary area, because it, it because it is the most holy part of the perpetual share of the food of offerings presented to the Lord. Thank you.
1: Good morning everyone if you'd like to open your Bibles or your phone up to Leviticus 23 25 it's the kind of text you'd probably wonder why on earth would you want to study this and put yourself out there on that part of Leviticus and I imagine many people here have never read it Uh, it tends to come in a book that people don't read anyway and if you did try to read it it's sort of the bowels of the book where things seem to become quite amorphous Uh, it would help if you can actually see it And the way I want to approach this text, which looks potentially very boring, is as a work of art. An appropriate way of treating uh, the Old Testament as art, because if you look at Israel, they didn't ever really get very involved in the plastic arts, or uh, painting, things like that. And sometimes people say, we don't dig up these things in Israel, or modern-day Palestine, and, and they may even question Israel's existence. But more likely, if you want to be more generous about this, if you look at modern Judaism, they also have tended to despise painting and uh, those sort of artworks. And it seems to go back to a reluctance to make a graven image and then bow down to it in their commandments. But as humans, they still had to have an artistic outlet, and so Israel's art gallery is its scriptures. And what I'd like to do is actually have a look at Leviticus 23, 25, as uh, almost like an art critic. What I would say with Leviticus 23-25 is it's sort of an abstract work of art at best. I used to only have a palette for realist uh, paintings, you know, things that look like a photograph. When you're a kid, for me, that, was, that would fascinate me to see that someone had the skill to be able to do that. But then over time, you can develop uh, a taste for abstract art and you just look at this random stuff and now you're challenged to bring, bring meaning to it. And so I would say, if you could stand back, I mean, it's, it's a long text, 23, 25, we're not going to get heavily involved in it, I promise you, and I'll get, I think I get uh, gonged off at 29 past, I've been told. Uh, if you are to stand back and look at this text, and I'm the art critic with you, and we say, well, what have we got in front of us? You would say at first it looks like a vista of a grand vista of Israel's calendrical life, its calendar years. So in Leviticus 23, if you can see it there, it's all those events or festivals that occur within the year the Sabbath, the Feast of Tabernacles. Day of Atonement, this is what Israel's life of calendars or festivals, proclamations look like throughout their calendar year. And then you look to the other side of the painting and you can see Leviticus 25. And now these are the events that happen every few years. So the Sabbath year and the one most of us will know of is the year of Jubilee. But then all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, it's like you're looking at this grand picture of something and then there's a McDonald's symbol right in the middle of this beautiful picture. It's rudely interrupted by the text that was just read out for us from Leviticus 24, 1 to 9 first, a ritual prescription. These are the most difficult texts to read to your kids after dinner at night. Very difficult, much more difficult than if you're on Judges or something like that. Though the text that follows it, Leviticus 24, 10 to 23, does have some action. It's the only fun text in Leviticus, after Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, get incinerated in the Holy of Holies, it looks like, after they got on the source. Uh, if, if you read that text qu- closely, it looks like they had too much, got in there, offered something unauthorised, and kaboom. So we've got these two texts, a ritual prescription text for lighting candles and getting 12 loaves of bread and putting them under these candles, and then a story about a blasphemer, a guy, and we'll have a look at it in a moment, who goes out literally pierces God's name and they take him outside the camp and stone him to death that, that one's got the kids attention what I want to do to have a look at what is the point of this artwork is to stand here and see what why do we have this interruption of Leviticus 24 between 23 25 what is the meaning or purpose of this larger text and have a look at what implication it has for us today as Christians and the way that I want to do it is looking very closely now at the symbolism of Leviticus 24:1 to 9. And this is where, as the art critic, I'm, I may have to give you some guidance. It's like at the moment uh, Trinity College, Queensland has just received a new New Testament lecturer called John Frederick, who's an American. He 's just come from Phoenix, Arizona, he 's a very bright man, but I tell you, if you took him into an art gallery, an exhibition of Sidney Nolan's paintings, he'd be clueless, right? So he'd be just standing there, looking at a picture. He may even try to be kind and say, well, the guy knows how to paint a landscape and bodies, but he obviously couldn't paint a head. You know what I mean? Because he just got that black box. And so, "Hey, I've just got to unpack something for you. Let's talk about the history of the Kelly gang. And now it'll make a little more meaning for you. And so if you look at those verses that were read out before... I actually think that you get the symbolism of the 12 loaves, right? If you have to think of 12, and here's Israel, they're going to the promised land, you're thinking 12 tribes of Israel that are to be continually or regularly, notice this is Moses, instructing Moses, to get these 12 loaves and regularly put them under this light or as as in this NIV Bible I have here, under this lamp. So... So the symbolism, 12 tribes of Israel, that Moses regularly brings under the lamp. Now what is the symbolic significance of the lamp? In one sense, some of us will say it's God's presence. Now that, I think that is right in, in, uh, in the Psalms, it'll talk about the light of God's presence, and it's the same Hebrew word for light there. And this lamp itself is sitting right in front of the, the curtain in front of the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is, is above the Ark of the Covenant, right? Sitting right there. And there's, so there's a sense in which that, that brings a connection between the light on the lamp and God's, God's presence. Let me see if I can at least make this plausible, what I'm going to say, by, by, by unpacking what the lamp looked like. The lamp is the tabernacle menorah, which has seven lights. Now, I'm going to start by saying seven... In the ancient world, if you want to ask, where did seven come from? Why are we interested in sevens? Most likely it relates to uh, the ancient world's use of a solar lunar calendar already. You know, we've got the calendar. If we're asking why is this here, I reckon you're already making connections with the calendar either side of this text. But those seven lights, the sun, moon, and five planets that are visible to the naked eye, are what the ancient world used to govern time. Now, already, we're thinking, why have we got these calendars in Leviticus 23, 25? They should have just come butted up to, against one another, right? But they're not. They're split by Leviticus 24. And already we're thinking, right, this lamp, the seven lights, the sun, moon, the five planets, that govern our calendar, already I'm, I'm starting to pick up some rationale between for why this text comes as it does between the calendars. I still don't know why that guy's getting stoned, literally stoned with rocks, at the end of this chapter. But but here's the key, right? So if it's a a work of art, an artwork, the word for light being used here for the lamps is used for candlelight everywhere else in the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Old Testament. Always used for, for candlelight, except for one text, and that's Genesis 1, verses 13, uh, 14 to 16, where it occurs, I think, six times in quick succession. Let me read this for you. And God said, let there be lights, but now candle lights, okay? Let there be Israel's tabernacle, menorah. Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve... ...as signs to mark the proclamations, Israel's calendar, and days, Leviticus 25, oh sorry, and years, Leviticus 25. Do you see what's going on here? Leviticus 24 has this tabernacle menorah, this light in front of God's presence in the Holy of Holies... ...that is so strongly associated with Israel's calendar, from Genesis 1, verses 14 to 16... And so if we bring all this symbolism together, Israel is the subject of the verb to keep the lights continually burning. God's presence, the tabernacle presence, right? And Moses is commanded to regularly bring 12 loaves, the 12 tribes of Israel, under his light, under his rule. Okay, you get the symbolism, I'm hoping, here by this stage. You won't labour it anymore. They'll run out of time. Uh, and then this interprets, so there's the ideal Israel sitting under the light of God's presence, or his presence, but this then interprets the significance of Israel's calendar, that they were to regularly, ritually acknowledge God's rule. And if you have a look at the calendar, both 23, 25, they concentrate on the new identity that they've been given by God in bringing them out of Egypt. It's always connected with Sabbath or rest. And so it's even anchored in creation, in God's promise of rest. So here's the ideal Israel, and it's being told, hey, this is the significance of all your ritual activity, when you regularly stop to acknowledge my rule, so that you're obliged to be faithful to my relationship with you as, as my holy people. It unpacks the significance of their calendar. And so this helps then unpack or explain why we then have this juicy story that follows in verses 10 to 23. Let me introduce you to this poor guy who gets stoned. Now the son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father, significant, this guy could go either way, right? His dad's an Egyptian. His mum's an Israelite. Which way is he going to go? He went out among the Israelites and a fight broke out in the camp between him and an Israelite. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name with a curse so they brought him to Moses. And of significance, this guy who's pierced the name of God with his own words, his mother's name was Shelomith, peace, the daughter of Divri, words, the daughter of peaceful words, the Danites, Irony going on here. They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Then the Lord said to Moses, take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head, and the entire assembly is to stone him. Say to the Israelites, if anyone curses his God, he'll be held responsible. Anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire assembly must stone him, whether an alien or native-born When he blasphemes the name, he must be put to death. And then again with a literary flourish here, in verse 17 through to 22, there's there's this statement that shows how serious God is about this. Follow me on this. Verse 17, he says, If anyone takes the life of a human being, uh, verse 21b, Whoever kills a man must be put to death. Uh, Verse... uh, Verse 18, anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution. Drop down to verse 21, whoever kills an animal must make restitution. Verse 19, if anyone injures his neighbour, whatever he's done must be done to him. Verse uh, 20b, as he is injured the other, so he is to be injured. And then right in the centre of what they call technically a chiism, it says, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. God will exact justice to ensure that his people are holy. Verse 23, Then Moses spoke to the Israelites, and they took the blasphemer outside the camp and stoned him. The Israelites did as the Lord commanded Moses. And so the issue with this guy, as an illustration for the reader, here is a person who enjoyed all Israel's holidays, all its festivals, feast of booths, would get to eat, enjoy the rest take it easy every seventh day as though he is one of God's people and then the next day he goes out and curses God so his ritual life did not align with his daily life it wasn't lived inside out as we've called this session the ritual never hit the road in the life of this person and so God's demands that not not even just for the Israelite but for the foreigner as well If you don't live the life of holiness, as reflected in your ritual, he'll remove you from his people outside the camp. And so there's the purpose for me of 2325, is making a statement about Israel's ritual life. There is an ideal, holy Israel that's been redeemed from Egypt, and God has put a framework of ritual around it in these calendars that's expected to acknowledge their new identity, and they're to go out and live the way he now sees them. And the text retains the same punch, I think, for a Christian audience such as this one, except for the fact we, we, we don't live under threat of being dragged outside and stoned anymore. And in, in this sense, I mean, for Israel, those people who heard him when they put their hands on him, in a sense, they were preserving their sanctity, their holy, we heard what you said, And to preserve our holiness, this identity we have, we have to put our hands on you, acknowledge you're outside the camp and destroyed. And it's worth playing with Hebrews 13, verse 13 here, where the writer talks about Jesus being taken outside the camp uh, to make us holy. That's why we're no longer stoned for this sort of thing. We have a new identity in Christ. We are holy. That's how God sees us. But where this text still applies is that it still acknowledges where we have a life of ritual that acknowledges this new identity, right? We regularly meet all the more as the day approaches. Uh, we regularly pause to hear the proclamation of God's Word. We regularly partake in the Lord's Supper. We're baptised. We pray in public. All these rituals acknowledge the new identity we have in Christ as his holy people. We're we're a new people. And what Leviticus 23, 25 says, this has got to apply through the way that we live the rest of our lives. It's like a friend said to me, uh, the gathering of God's people on Sunday sanctifies the week. It's it's an acknowledgement that what's torn asunder in the story of the Garden of Eden has been brought back together In Christ it's I enter the week knowing that I am a new creation holy that's got to impact my whole life I was thinking about this especially as uh, marriage is a topical thing at the moment I was thinking about marriage as a ritual that we can all acknowledge in our society it's probably the ritual that that society acknowledges is a public commitment between Two people and then impacts our lives thereafter. And I I want to acknowledge there'll be people here who've had a very disappointing, uh, awful experience of marriage. But what we can all agree is that when two people, this man and woman, make this commitment in front of others... ...there's this acknowledgement that the single person died. And a recognition that this person is now one with the other. And it's a ritual that we attend to all the time, regardless of what ends up happening with your marriage. You'll know that it, it just keeps echoing on through life. Always needing to attend to it, knowing other people will be watching and keeping us accountable to the vows that we made. And we put a lot of energy into that. Leviticus 23:25, I think, demands that we do the same with those rituals that we engage in weekly. Uh, these practices... That acknowledge our new identity and we do it in front of others even when we're singing before making commitments to God to attend to it in our daily lives sanctifying the week it's an uncomfortable teaching in a way because I tell you when I was thinking how do I conclude this I think it's with a prayer of repentance not not one of guilt and shame because we have been made holy by the one who's been taken outside the camp for us but It's time for us to repent when we find that our daily lives may not align with those ritual expressions and proclamations of who we are in Christ. So let's pray. Lord God, we ask that your spirit would create in us a spirit of humility, that we would take time to reflect on those ritual practices that we engage in regularly, hearing your word proclaimed and being interested yet Sometimes we don't go and live it. Or remembering that we're one with the body of Christ when we share in the Lord's Supper. Yet we can be quite divisive. And in all those other things, as as we move on into our daily lives, of being parents, of work, or what we do in retirement, that the way that we live, the holiness that you see in us in your Son would be manifested in our actions and behaviours. Amen.